The <coughs> theme for the evening talk is <coughs> this word, uh, dukkha. <coughs> for a number of you, this concept will be familiar, and for others, it might be the first time in your entire existence you've ever heard the word. The word uh, dukkha is a Pali word, that is the language which in the movement from the oral to the written uh, tradition of, uh, of what the Buddha is uh, reputed to have said. It was recorded in Pali language and this word dukkha, D-U-K-H-A or D-U-double-K-H-A, I can never remember, um, is a central theme and word and anybody who has any sustained contact and exposure to these kind of uh, teachings will hear the use and know of this particular word from time to time. And it often gets translated in various ways, but it includes at one end of things of life, uh, suffering. Emotional, mental, spiritual, uh, existential, sometimes including and embracing the pains, of course, of the body uh, as well. And at the uh, other end of that polarity, we might say, is its much more subtle sense of the experience of things being unsatisfactory and, in a way, unfulfilling. And as people on this earth, we easily find ourselves, sometimes in day-to-day life, moving between various positions in relationship to dukkha. That means in relationship to forms of suffering and difficulty, pain and conflict arising in our life, on the one side, or that subtle expression that I just referred to, when there is a kind of lingering feeling that what one is doing in all the activities, if not the busyness of our existence, no matter how fine and good and no matter how much others may applaud it, there's something unfulfilling about it, unsatisfying about it. And that feeling may not occur every day, may occur from time to time, but nevertheless it's communicating in relationship to events of one's life, that uh, expression and communication of something, as I say, unsatisfying. When that unsatisfying feeling takes a grip and a hold on us, we quite often wish to reach out to overcome it. And that reaching out, if it's towards the same thing uh, again and again, we call it a habit, or a pattern, or an obsession, or an addiction. So there's some kind of movement that goes on inside of us which is unfulfilling, unsatisfying. We're having a job dealing with it, accommodating it, working with it. 
and we desperately wish to overcome it. And so we move into an engagement with life to find something out there which will take away this feeling, which will end it. And it can be that the very movement and dynamic of our life is such of going from one thing to the other and temporarily there may be some relief from its movement, from that movement, from that unsatisfying feeling. We get the relief from it, but every relief we find seems to be rather short-lived. And soon as that relief has faded away, we're once again faced with something unsatisfying, some irritation, some discontent or whatever, this is all the dukkha, and then there's a movement yet again. So a life is, can easily be seen as the constant wish to end, to overcome this particular feeling, sensation, thought, whatever that's going on inside of us. We want relief from it. In the uh, time of two and a half thousand uh, years ago, there is this rather um, historically well-known story of Siddhartha Gautama, one particular human being's quest and search, in fact, for some kind of resolution of the problem or problem of existence. And in a confused and unenlightened state, there was the fleeing from the known and the familiar, wife, child, family responsibilities, uh, leadership of the uh, nation of the Sakyan people, etc. The movement away from that because enough had struck in his consciousness, in the perceptions of uh, ageing, sickness and death, to raise inside of himself and many others before and since of what's the use and what's the point? What's the use and what's the point? And so, there can be a situation of tremendous indoctrination upon us, the endorsement and encouragement for us to pursue this, that and the other, and sometimes it, it, it means, or it takes us going to a funeral of somebody who has been close to us and standing there looking over the uh, funeral uh, the coffin in the cemetery or crematorium, wherever it might be and it just sparks a few triggers inside of oneself What's the point of pursuing for more and more and more? 
as the old one-liner goes, we can't take it with us. And it seems rather futile and absurd to live a life of pursuit of more, whatever it's called, name and fame, um, um, privilege and status amongst one's peers, um, possessions, um, money, etc., uh, etc. Et when death comes along and kind of laughs at the futility of human effort. And so sometimes, if it was such that you and I were going to live on this earth for eternity, we might think a little bit more in long term. But when it's three score years and ten, when most of us here looking at ourselves and each other, and in a generation or two, 25 years, 50 years, the probability is that none of us will be here, and those that might be will be so old and decrepit when we'll be looking forward to joining the nuns behind to help push up the daisies, uh, nourish the daisies there. So, in the context of generations upon generations, our life is rather brief. And one person said to me some years ago, our life seems to be about as long as a, a flash of lightning. My immediate response was, it's not that long. So sometimes we, you know, kind of stepping back, we try possibly to have a little bit more overview of our existence on this earth. And perhaps that overview and bringing some awareness to it, whoever we are, whatever we do, just helps to put in place the fragility and the vulnerability of being alive on this earth and breathing and feeling and thinking and walking and sitting. But it's a very short visit. So perhaps a hundred generations ago, two and a half thousand years, perhaps a hundred generations ago, then Siddhartha had perhaps similar kind of thoughts and concerns. And some kind of exploration, quest, inquiry, investigation, whatever, began to un unfold. And I think one of the things about that, without trying to make the fellow into a hero or anything, is that some people will enter into Dharma teachings and practice will tend to view it as a kind of mild appendix to getting on with the real thing of living. A little uh, softening agent. 
against the excesses of habit and patterns and addiction. Um, uh, a means to, um, I think probably one of the final insults to the teachings would be um, to bring a little bit more mindfulness into day-to-day life. And when that happens, the mind is set in a kind of uh, view, sometimes set in concrete, uh, tragically. It's just a little extra to the main thing of living, and the main thing of living is getting what one wants and to hell with the rest. And when there's some doubt in that kind of priority, it can be that the forms of dukkha, the forms of unrest and dissatisfaction, actually begin to change. Because then one is at the point of actually looking at the whole of one's life, every bit of it every aspect, every single feature suddenly begins to stand out because one is refusing to say I'm not going to make a little bit of mindfulness as it, as it were, the sum total of what practice and t- teachings are, are all about. And there is that kind of uh, 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 danger in, um, today somebody mentioned a tricycle magazine. I just wrote a, a letter off, just posted it a couple of days ago to uh, Tricycle, where one of the um, Vipassana teachers had a feature in the magazine on the Four Noble Truths. And all uh, the teachings revolve and focus around each one of those truths. The first one, that there is dukkha, that means there is suffering, or there is unsatisfactoriness, or there is this unsatisfied feeling, or whatever, in this world, in hearts and minds of sentient beings, in human life. It is there, it is present, and it manifests in many many ways. There are causes for it, it doesn't just come, there are causes and conditions that bring it about. Second noble truth. Third noble truth, there is the resolution of it, which is liberation, enlightenment, the discovery of the unborn, the, the deathless. And fourthly, there is the way, called the Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right uh, livelihood, right effort, right awareness, right samadhi, meaning steps of meditation. And each one of those, when brought to the foreground in our life, when really attended to, contribute and enable us to understand what it is to be in this world, what matters and what the resolution of this ongoing issue is in life of dealing at times with suffering when it arises and some of the unsatisfied, unfulfilled feelings that go on in human beings in the endless quest to find something satisfying. Endless quest. So, one of the Vipassana teachers had a feature in the Tricycle magazine and said that 
the promise of peace of mind without being affected by the environment was the essential nature of the third noble truth. These sort of things would give anyone grey hairs to read. It has the same potential and danger as what has happened with Western yoga. Tragic. Great. It's a contemporary unexpressed tragedy in which yoga is a wonderful tradition which in the Patanjali uh, sutras and the teachings there embraces meditation, livelihood, uh, renunciation, simplicity of being, uh, depths of uh, liberation and all of that gets quietly and conveniently discarded and what one has is a few people stretching out their bodies in some parish hall and that's yoga. That's yoga. Complete forgetfulness and neglect of uh, yoga being that which is to be joined to the truth of things. Same thing can happen in these kind of situations and facilities or that whereby the um, thought of it, the conclusion, the opinion, the idea is, oh, it's ways and means to find a little bit more mindfulness in day-to-day life. And with that, of course, the exploration, the investigation, the determination, the sacrifice to find out what really is the truth and the heart of things, all of that gets forgotten. And one just chews one's food a little bit more mindfully. Great liberation. So, in all of that, in the teachings and the focus and the priority of the teachings, there's this feeling of unfulfilling, unsatisfying, which arises. Sometimes it arises very intensely. It arises through not getting what we want. It arises through losing what we have. Through being separated from what or who we, we love. It arises through clinging and holding onto things which either change and we don't want them to or they don't change and we want them to. And all of that, something goes on, there's a kind of unrest that goes on. And we say to ourselves, is that our plight? Is that our fate as human beings living on this earth? That sometimes we have pleasure because we get what we want, we keep what we want to keep, we have what we want to have, we secure what we want to secure, Is that a fate in existence to just secure pleasure and it's just to sustain itself and at times having to face and deal with and hassle over and try and overcome or whatever um, pain and difficulties and unhappiness and that therefore our life is simply a movement backwards and forwards 
between various times of pleasure, various times of displeasure, to varying degrees, and moving between one and the other, and just hoping that we'll have a little bit more of one, which is called pleasure, and a little bit less of the other, which is called displeasure or, or unhappiness, and that we'll come out on the, um, on the upside. And we'll feel a little bit of pity for those for whom it's the other way round, and they seem to be more often more unhappy than they are happy. And we go on like that until uh, the, the wind of nature comes and says, well, it's time to uh, blow out your little existence and join the nun. <laughs> and then, in that kind of view, kind of resign themselves to that. I hope the nuns didn't. <laughs> if not, they'll be haunting me tonight. But anyway, <laughs> and some kind of there's a kind of resignation that that's it. Not because of any inquiry or any resolution or any conclusion that's come to, but a dualistic view of life. That life is just pleasure and pain. Hopefully, a bit more of one than the other. Get on as we can with the best of it and die secular culture has that view it is the common view some, as we said earlier in the retreat religion serves as a consolation to the viewpoint that's it Pleasure, pain, if one has no religion, that's it. If one has a religion, a consolation. What a way to live. Human beings are something else. So if we stop and just wonder whether there's something confining, defining, limited, restrictive about all of that, doesn't mean to say that in that, of course, it was suddenly the resolution of living flowers and emerges. But maybe it just generates just a little bit of space. Maybe a little bit of space to say, is that all? Is that all that I can expect of my existence? There are a number, a number of you actually spoken, and not unusual. That there may be some feeling of uh, something uh, unsatisfying, unfulfilling, and one senses and knows that in one, at the point in one's own life, that what one can do has the potential for one or two things. One is to change the object of interest the object of focus, and that can be anything whatsoever, where one lives, with whom one lives, uh, place where one lives, the work, the study, etc. So sometimes the attention goes to the object, and that object is having, uh, there one feels, one needs to change. 
not easy to do given all the social circumstances which people live under, money of course being a, a primary uh, con- uh, consideration and numerous others. Sometimes one looks deeply into oneself and says, yes, there surely has to be something more than just this. And the thought itself, born out of something unfulfilling or unsatisfying, keeps arising and the thought doesn't carry the power to change. It carries the good idea but it doesn't carry the weight, the authority, the determination, the capacity. And so though we keep using the language of choice, well, I could choose to stay in this, whatever it is, or I could choose to leave. Ha! Choice is social mythology. It's a kind of idea. It says, oh yes, I've got choices. But actually, how many times do we say, with the choices that we really believe, honestly and sincerely we have, that we can't be having a great job doing anything about? If there are choices, the tobacco industry, which is so successful at murdering its customers, would have been out of business long ago. The alcohol industry which targets people who already have alcohol problems to get them to drink even, even more, would have a substantial dip in their profits if it was just people who liked the occasional glass and had no habit, no addiction, no identification with it. So the language of choice, I need to stop this, I need to change this, sometimes seems a contrick, a, a terrible self-deception when we say, I can't do it. My thought, my idea, my opinion, I can't make the choice. Yet, one senses to come out of suffering, to come out of unsatisfactoriness, to come out of addiction, to come out of habit, come out of obsession, or wh- whatever it might be, might be, is potential. But what will make the potential the fact? Thinking about it doesn't seem to do it. There doesn't seem to be much power in thinking about things that matter. So as I say, the good ideas to resolve the problem of dukkha are endless. Endless. But where's the energy going to come from? And for that, we need to go deeper into ourselves. We need to be in touch and in contact with like-minded people. We need the, the support and the understanding of people who have gone through that journey, who know that place or that point where one is, and know the way out of where one is. One needs all the resources that one uh, has. One needs to, to be taking steps. And all of that does imply some risk. 
So quite often, when we are looking at ourselves and say, I need to make a change in my life, major or minor, it will usually mean a risk. The risk that it will work out well, or it won't. It would be a wise thing to do, or it won't. So quite often, what's stopping the movement is the fear. It's fear. Living in fear. And it's going to take some cooperation and determination and steps to break through the fear. I had a friend who worked in one of those growth mental hospitals that used to be all over the country. They closed a lot of them down, as we know, not out of any any great compassion for those with mental difficulties, but simply because it was economically viable. And there was one person in the mental hospital who was, in this particular hospital, the nearer you were to the ground floor, was the nearer you were to being prepared to go outside. Further from the ground floor, the more crazy, quote-unquote, you were. So this person was on the top floor and was terrified of ever getting out, yet wanted to get out. Strangely, I then, it's another story, I ended up in this place for a very minor reason. As a teenager, on a bus, he'd put his hand up a woman's skirt. Then ended up having psychiatric treatment. And then, through, they put him in the mental hospital, and in the mental hospital he got more and more crazy. And he went from the ground floor to the next floor to the next floor. But just one silly, impulsive thing got him into a terrible mess. He'd been in there nine or ten years. So a friend said to him, we have to work together to get out of this situation and this place. But he was scared to leave the floor. How is he going to get outside? He's on the top floor. So he agreed to go one foot and put the other foot in front and then draw a line, a chalk line. And that was enough for that day. And then, a day or two later, he went to this young guy and he said, right, next day, today, one more foot. And then we'll draw another line. And they did that. It took months. But he was out. And I think it's a, uh, not only is it a true story, but sometimes we make a gap so big between who and where we are and where we want to be that we think, in kind of Superman terms, we're just going to make a big leap into Nirvana or wherever our Nirvana might be. And we forget that unless we're taking small steps, unless we begin to understand that our life too can, in Dharma terms, be living on the fifth floor, 
and the more unhappiness and, and uh, confusion and unrest and dissatisfaction, the more the, the evidence of it. So sometimes we've, we've got to look carefully and very attentively at where we are here and now. Really acknowledge that well and clearly. And if we're saying to ourselves, something needs to change in terms of the object, which is only one form of change, then steps have to be made. Otherwise, we end up complaining about ourselves, complaining about the job, complaining about the partner, complaining about the, the city, People in the city seem to be doing more complaining than people in the rural situation. So complaining about the city, etc. Not making any steps. Living on the fifth floor. Sometimes it's not the object itself which needs changing. Relationships fine, work's fine, place is fine. Nothing to be demanded or struggled with. But it's the relationship to it does require looking at. How do we relate to it? What's typical pattern for us? What needs to, to change in all of that? What would be a very clear demonstration in practical terms of changing the way of looking and relating to? Otherwise, we live in the past. So, in the addressing of our life, in the turning of our attention to our existence, sometimes, and some of you will know, it's the changing of the fact. Sometimes, it's the relationship to it. And it can be that, not always, but one or the other of those two are standing out as a kind of priority in one's life. And we can meditate till the cows come home. But unless we actually attend there to these things, it can be that we kind of overlook it. And then once again we are reducing things to being a little bit more mindful and a little bit less stressed or whatever. Sometimes in the world of the uh, dukkha that we hear, it's not unusual one hears it from all sorts of authorities. That the, the Buddhists say that life is suffering. It's a, it's a mantra which has gone on for two and a half thousand uh, years. And it has always seemed to me a very um, grim view of existence. The Buddha, incidentally, has never said this, though it's the one-liner which is attributed to him with great frequency. frequency. He said, there is suffering in this world. It's different. That suffering arises when there are the causes and conditions for it to arise. That's something quite different from the blanket statement, life is suffering. Third opinion, and one suspects that the proponents of this 
um, either are depressed or feeling depressed when they say it or write it or have simply identified with this view and opinion that's been virus-like transferred from one generation of uh, Buddhists to the next and it's probably one of those one-liners which puts more people off hearing and practicing the teachers' teachings. Who would want to go to a place where somebody is putting out morning, noon and night, life is suffering, life is suffering, life is suffering. It's hardly inspiring and certainly not very insightful. Yet to turn away and, 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 and say, oh, life is wonderful, you know, everything is divine, and everything is another great mantra at the other extreme everything is perfect and sometimes when I hear this people say everything is perfect I must be living in another world because the world that I see is that is one that sometimes there is great joy and wonder and and magic as it were in this world but there's also in this world great obscenities terrible cruelty of brutality and injustice and just unkindness as well and to say in one standpoint everything is perfect and another to take up the view uh, life is suffering somehow there's got to be some middle way which we can go deeply into to realise something which is not just moving backwards and forwards between duality something, a different sense altogether so that we can acknowledge in our experience and in our day-to-day life yes, pleasure arises yes, pain arises yes, suffering arises yes, joy arises yes, clarity arises yes, confusion arises but something which is attends to all of that but sees well and clearly and in such a way that somehow it's all resolved. The problem of the movement between this to that and from that to this, somehow it's resolved. And there's a resolution of this thing of living. Tradition, actually coming from the, coming from the Buddha, often refers to the um, preciousness of human birth, human rebirth, those who believe in rebirth. And the example which is used is of a yoke. You know, the yoke is a thing around the, the cow and when they're ploughing the field. Of floating on the water. And once in every kalapa, Kanapa, well, to put it mildly, is one hell of a long time. It's um, more than the entire span of this Earth's existence. From sentient beings to beginning of them to the very end of them, like that. It's an incredibly long time. And once every Kanapa, a turtle, puts its head up out of the water 
and it goes up through the yoke, floating on the top of the ocean. One might say, what an extraordinary coincidence. You know, I, I, had one, I actually had one of those myself the other day. I was travelling up on the train to uh, London and I was reading a, a book which has now become a film. I haven't seen the film, but I was reading the book. Somebody, a friend sent to me, said, you have to read, you have to read. It's called uh, The English Patient. And it's true. While I was reading this book, it was on the train up to London, and in one passage, about two-thirds of the way book, through the book, there is a reference to the white horse which is in the chalk at Westbury. And I was just reading, this is absolute truth, I was reading, reading the book, and it was about a mine in the uh, chalk, that the Germans were using it to, uh, to know their reference points because of the lights out. So, reading it, and just on that line, and I looked up, and blow me down, what was in front of me was the white horse of Westbury there. And it's sometimes the synchronicity, as uh, therapists will say. You know, it's just sometimes uh, extraordinary. So here's the, here's the, the turtle. It, it comes up out of the water once in every calapa, and when it does, it comes through the single yoke floating on the water. How strange, how incredible, rare that is. The Buddhists say that's how rare a human birth or rebirth is in this world, in this universe. That's how precious it is, that rare. And when one sometimes reads in the average back garden, there are more creatures, ants and all the other things running around, etc., etc., than, than, than there are for miles and miles around in terms of human beings. But sometimes we lose the sense of all of that. We get so bogged down with what I want and who I think I am and all of that, we hardly stop to recognize our human existence in this field of existence. Terrible loss of awareness. Now we have this thing of being human, we have this element of consciousness, it has the capacity to reveal, to see, to open up, to discover, to find out, to penetrate into, and it gets diverted in all sorts of ways. And we're saying, let's come back to the here and now situation, to leaving no stone unturned, to looking at where we need to take risks, to open up the consciousness and finding the contact and the association and the nature and the resources to help make that possible and if it means just being like that young man in his late twenties in the hospital on the fifth floor taking one short step at a time if that's what it means then so be it it will be worth every single step And that's what the teachings keep pointing towards. The freedom of the human being, liberated and enlightened understanding about what it is to be. And that certainly is the great respect 
that we pay to ourselves and to life itself. And it would be rather a pity, wouldn't it, to come to the end of one's life and say, God, I blew it. I didn't take a step. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live without fear. May all beings live with wisdom. <laughs>